Recently, Meredith saw an Instagram post from the podcast The Bible Binge, which some of you may be familiar with, asking for questions from listeners about an upcoming episode on heaven. And the comments were full of concerns about getting bored, worries about being separated from other heaven-bound loved ones who are residing in a different part of the city, I guess, all while exclusively focusing on your harp playing to please some quasi-impersonal deity. Now, I'm not entirely sure how this particular image of heaven took such firm root in our culture. I'm sure that's the topic for a whole book of how Platonic philosophy and medieval culture entwined and contributed to people reading what the Bible actually says about what it usually calls the age to come incorrectly. But whatever the historical mechanism, the end result is that we have questions like those from the Bible binge comment section, which betray a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Bible actually says about our ultimate destiny. And you get TV shows like The Good Place, which was a fantastic show, but not because it accurately depicted a biblical perspective on the afterlife. I know, spoilers, right? An NBC sitcom isn't biblically accurate? What is the world coming to? Seriously, I I am going to spoil the plot of The Good Place now, though, so if you've really just been saving it up for like eight years now, feel free to skip ahead a couple times. Okay, so The Good Place begins with the main characters thinking that they've died and ended up somehow in the, you know, good place. But something seems off, even as they get as much shrimp as they can eat or every book ever written is at their fingertips, depending on which character we're talking about and their deepest desires. Personally, I think I'd like to combine Eleanor's dream of unlimited shrimp with Chidi's access to every book ever, but I digress. And the twist at the end of the first season is that They've actually been in the bad place all along, and the demon in charge has constructed this whole scenario as an elaborate experimental form of torture. Through the future seasons, the characters go on philosophical journeys of learning to be better people until they finally do, somehow, make it to the actual good place, where they find a bunch of listless people wasting away from boredom. They aren't literally strumming harps on clouds, but they might as well be. And then the show ends as, one by one, the characters choose the freedom of peaceful annihilation over continuing on in boredom. It seems that, on the whole, the limit of our imagination for what will happen to us after we die is either the hedonism of getting what we want all the time, or the boredom of strumming a harp and sitting on a cloud, stroking the divine ego for all eternity. What I'm hoping today is that Paul might open up some new possibilities for us to shake our imaginations free a bit from those two twin ideas. Because the second section of the letter to the Romans, which we've been looking at for the last few weeks, chapters five through eight, it closes with the ultimate destiny for those who follow Jesus and crucially for creation as a whole. And those two are intimately connected, as we will see. Paul is, in these final verses of chapter 8, getting to the answer to the question he's been exploring in this second section. Where is this living in the spirit instead of living in sin headed? And his answer is quite different from those misunderstandings that I've just been talking about. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and we're going to read through 25 in this first bit. This is how I work it out, Paul writes. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting in the scale alongside the glory that is going to be unveiled for us. Yes, creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation, 
eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility, not of its own volition, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection, in the hope that creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. Let me explain. We know that the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together up until the present time. Not only so, we too, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit's life within us, are groaning within ourselves as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our body. We were saved, you see, in hope. But hope isn't hope if you can't see it. Who hopes for what they can see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it eagerly, but also patiently. My hunch is that many of us have read that first verse. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting in the scale alongside the glory that is going to be unveiled for us. And we haven't considered its connection with what immediately follows it in verse 19 and what follows that. But this verse, verse 18, it's not an isolated one, a sentence waiting to be used as a proof text to cheer someone up who is having a hard time. No, it is part of an argument that continues into the rest of this passage. Paul doesn't speak in sound bites for the most part, like a CNN contributor or a Calvinist Twitter personality. I once read an account by someone back when Barack Obama was still a senator saying how he was one of those people who doesn't speak in sentences, but rather in fully formed paragraphs, even when he's speaking off the cuff. Paul's like that. He speaks in paragraphs and chapters, which is part of why it's tough to understand him sometimes when we read bits and pieces. So our baseline assumption, just in general, when we're reading one of Paul's letters, is that the whole section ought to belong together. It should make sense together, not that he jumps around from topic to topic randomly. And that matters as we look at this particular passage, because how that first verse has tended to be read is that our current earthly suffering will be outweighed by future heavenly bliss, that the temporary bad stuff happening here is no match for the eternity of happiness we individuals will experience later. There will be an unending supply of shrimp or whatever. But this is not what Paul goes on to talk about in verse 19 and what follows. And if we think of Romans as a letter about how individual sinners can get their sin taken away so that they can go to heaven one day, which is how a lot of us were taught to read it, then the shift Paul makes right here between verse 18 and verse 19, it doesn't make much sense because then Paul starts talking about creation. But if we read the letter Paul actually wrote, the one we've been trying to explore together as we've gone through Romans, This shift isn't really a shift at all. It makes all the sense in the world. Paul goes on to talk about what the glory we are waiting for, as verse 18 puts it, what it consists of. And it isn't floating around a cloud in a white robe. He goes on to talk about creation groaning in anticipation of God's children being revealed. That creation itself has been subject to slavery and decay and is waiting for freedom. Freedom that would come not when God waved a magic wand or made it all disappear, but when God's children were glorified. There's that word glory again. The glory we are waiting for in verse 18 is the glory that creation is waiting for so that it can be freed from decay. We hope for glorification that will result in creation being freed. 
Now, this needs some unpacking because many of us have been taught the wrong fundamental story that makes this all make sense. So let's go back to the beginning. The narrative that Paul sees for the universe, the narrative that is underlying all of what he's saying here, he's almost like assuming that people already know this story because, well, he, as a first century Jew who knew his Bible really well, this was the story that he had been steeped in. But when we don't have that narrative close at hand and ready to be used to interpret what Paul is saying, it makes it a lot harder to understand what he's getting at. But the narrative that he sees for the universe is one where humans were created in the image of God. That's kind of the baseline beginning of it all. Meaning not that we have God's same facial features like Harry Potter, who's forever told he has his mother's eyes, but that we are God's representatives and partners in ruling well over creation. We know that that is what image of God is referring to because we can look at the ancient Near Eastern context. And in that context, a king in the surrounding nations was often described as the image of the gods. And when a king was called that, it was because he ruled in place of the gods on a throne that represented both his own power and his God's power and character. So Paul is reaching back all the way to Genesis, which tells of a creation that humans are intended to rule over like kings, except in this case, it is all humanity, which is important. They're to rule over this creation as representatives and reflections of Yahweh God. Creation, in the narrative that Paul is working from, was an unfinished work that God intended humans to continue working on. Genesis doesn't tell of a complete, perfect creation. It tells of creation that needed to be ruled over, subdued, governed wisely and well. Those are the instructions that God gives to the humans. It needed to be filled and completed, and humans were the ones who were intended to do that work alongside God in a way that reflected who God is. But human sin, their insistence to put their trust in things other than God, got in the way of all that. And so the problem with human sin is not simply that individual humans did bad things and deserve punishment for being so bad. The problem with human sin is that all of creation has been knocked off balance. Paul, I think, would look at all that is wrong with the world, not just the things humans cause directly, but everything, natural disasters and disease and all the rest, and would say that that exists because of humans, because humans did not do what they were created to do. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that Eve eating a fruit magically caused volcanoes to start erupting or tigers to start eating other animals or anything like that. I think a better way of thinking about this is that this God-given vocation, the one where humans were supposed to partner with God to rule well over the world, that was a vocation that needed real work and real creativity to accomplish. Humans had real responsibility, which means that when they walked away, all the problems that still existed in creation remained unsolved. God didn't just swoop in like a helicopter parent bailing their kid out of trouble. This is a tough one to wrap our minds around because it requires us to imagine things that don't exist. But I think that had humans never walked away in the first place, we would have used our creativity alongside God's inspiration to accomplish things that now we can't even dream of, that we would have found cures to more diseases, if not all of them, that we would have found ways to contain volcanic eruptions or earthquakes or else ways of predicting them and other natural disasters and then preventing those disasters from causing the suffering they do currently, 
that we would have learned how to influence and govern nature so that, probably not that tigers start eating grass, but I don't know, I guess I imagine it as some perfected version of the Lion King's circle of life would exist, where, yes, some animals eat other animals, but that it's all part of a life-giving, sustainable, flourishing system, rather than being a tragedy. I don't know, or maybe tigers would somehow start eating grass. Who knows? The specifics aren't the point. The general idea is. And so I don't want to get too far down a tangent here because we could spend all day exploring different options and throwing stuff around. But I think it's important that we be thinking in this general way to understand what Paul is fundamentally saying in this passage. Creation is groaning and decaying because of human sin. Not because my lying causes cancer, but because our collective choice to not be who God made us to be both directly and indirectly prevents creation from being what God made it to be. Directly, through our greed and exploitation of the natural world, for example, but indirectly, through our lack of solutions for the problems that need solving and that God intended to help us solve. Creation is longing for us to be glorified, not because it just can't wait to listen to us harmonizing with our harps on our clouds, but because it desperately needs us to be the image of God, to be God's representatives and to rule wisely and well over it. In some sense, which I don't think we will totally understand until we actually see it in practice, God's plan continues to be that creation would be made new through our glorification. This is what, again, we are hoping and waiting patiently for, as Paul says in verse 18 and returns to in verse 25. We are hoping and waiting patiently for the time when we are glorified. And glorified here again means we are restored fully to the image of God, to that role as partners with God in taking care of creation. We don't usually think of glory this way. But if you listened a few weeks back in a sermon, I mentioned that the glory of God, that phrase in the Old Testament It usually was used to refer to God's presence in a place. When the temple was filled with God's glory, it wasn't referring to the ambiance of the place. It was referring to God's self being present there. And in that light, then, when we think about our own glorification, that happens when we are filled with God's presence, both in the sense of the spirit living in us, but also in the sense of filling the role of image bearer, that we were created to fill. God is present through us because we are God's representatives. Now, at first glance, this might seem a bit over self-aggrandizing or even blasphemous, but I think we already have a sense of what this means. We sometimes experience God's presence through one another as we are present with and care for each other. And this is like that, just on a grander scale. Partnering with humans is how God chooses to do much of the work God intends to do. And Paul sees that only intensifying in the future. This is what our future destiny is. Not a disembodied heaven just sitting around being bored, but working alongside God in caring for creation. Praising God, not with literal harps, although maybe we do some of that too, but through our work and interactions with one another and with creation as we accurately reflect God's character to the world made new around us. That is what praising God for eternity will look like. I don't think we can totally understand, again, what this will mean in practice, but sitting around bored with nothing much important to do is certainly not what Paul had in mind for our eternal destiny. That doesn't sound much like life to me. 
nor does it match the character of the God we see in the Bible. As N.T. Wright puts it, this resurrection life is never something to be enjoyed simply for itself. Those renewed at the last, those who share in the glory of the Messiah, will receive an inheritance which will be the entire world. There they will have tasks to perform, tasks to do with the liberation of creation from the injustice, misery, bondage, corruption, and death that at present characterize it. And it seems to me those tasks are going to be meaningful and fulfilling and tailored to exactly who we each uniquely are, demanding every bit of our creativity and character in order to do them well. And so as we move into the final verses that we're going to look at for today, there's one more key point in all of this, and that's what comes out starting in verse 26. In the same way, too, the Spirit comes alongside and helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray for as we ought to, but that same Spirit pleads on our behalf with groanings too deep for words, and the searcher of hearts knows what the Spirit is thinking because the Spirit pleads for God's people according to God's will. We know, in fact, that God works all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Those he foreknew, you see, he also marked out in advance, predestined in some translations, to be shaped according to the model of the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn of a large family. And those he marked out in advance, predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also, here's the word again, glorified. Paul begins talking about the spirit groaning alongside us and creation and God bringing good out of all things. And then, or so the Calvinists want us to believe, Paul makes a massive shift in topic from this longing and groaning for a world made new to making a dry theological statement about predestination. It should come as no surprise at this point that I don't think this is a jump in topic at all. I think Paul is his line of thought is actually very consistent. It's not a shift. It's a return to the idea that came up earlier in this chapter, that we can be confident that all of this will in fact take place. We, creation and the spirit within us, all groan and long for God to remake the world and bring about our glorification, which again means our being the image of God that we were meant to be. And the final verses are emphasizing that we can be sure that God will, in fact, do it. That God isn't going to stop halfway, but will bring it to completion, even if it seems a long way off in this current time of suffering and hardship. That is what Paul is saying here. All these things will be worked together for good, Paul writes. Not all things are good, if we just squint and look at them from the right angle, but rather, God will bring good out of them. As we are formed in patience and character, and hope through suffering. You may remember back in chapter five, the very first verses of this section, when Paul said that suffering produces patience and character and hope. Well, now we are returning to that very idea, pulling this whole section of the letter together. If we are going to be God's image bearers, which Paul assumes that we are ruling well over creation, then we need our character to be formed so that we can actually do that well, so that we can actually reflect God well to the world, because my character right now is not conformed to the image of Christ, not by a long shot. So how does God accomplish this? How does God move our character 
to a place where we can fulfill the role of image bearer that we were made for. God does it through, in part, working through the suffering that we experience now, working it into character so that we would be the mature, God-reflecting people we need to be to rule well over creation. That is the purpose which God has called us according to, as verse 28 says. The purpose we've been called to is to reflect God's character to the world. And to do that, we need God to build such a character in us, working all things to our good in that sense, so that we can actually fulfill our purpose well when the time comes. This is the process by which we become conformed to the image of Jesus, as some translations of verse 29 say. God working all things together to conform us to the image of Jesus is the way that we become the image of God, as Genesis put it. It is what makes it possible for us to fulfill the purpose God has called us to, a purpose that is not mainly about us at all, but is instead, as the previous verses made clear, about the whole world and the plans God has for the world. This whole section all ties together. And that brings us to the last verses. Many have taken verses 29 and 30 and what it says about predestination leading to glorification, and they have understood them to mean that God calls some individuals to be saved and others to be damned. But especially in light of what we've been talking about up until now, we should see that this is at the very least too individualistic. God calls people so that they might then represent God to the world and bring more people into God's family, bringing more of creation into alignment with God's kingdom. To quote N.T. Wright again, as true image bearers, he says, they might reflect that same image into the world, bringing to creation the healing, freedom, and life for which it longs. To be conformed to the image of God or of God's son is a dynamic, not a static concept. Reflecting God into the world is a matter of costly vocation. Thinking about what Paul says about God's foreknowledge and predestination as being about who is in and who is out is to miss the point that he's making and to miss how the Bible as a whole looks at being God's chosen people in general. The point is always that one is chosen so that the kingdom of God can be expanded. God's choosing is not to the exclusion of others, but for the sake of others. God chooses to work through some to reach more. God chooses to work through some to heal the entire world. And Paul's point in these verses says nothing about people being left out. It's entirely focused on the assurance of the members of the church. Now they can be confident that God is not going to stop halfway, but will carry this project through to the end and that their membership in God's family is not in doubt. We can be confident that we will be conformed to the image of Christ, that we will be glorified, taking up that costly vocation of being the image of God in the world. We don't need to waste our energy worrying about whether we're in or we're out or fretting about whether we're fools for thinking this God might actually come through for us and for the world. We can get on with the work now, knowing that as we try our best to be God's partners today, we are practicing for our eternal destiny, like trainees preparing for their career. Knowing that when we succeed, God celebrates with us the ways that creation has gotten a bit closer to what it was supposed to be. Knowing that when we suffer failure, God uses that to produce the patience and character that will serve us well eternally. We suffer and groan and work and hope now 
in anticipation of the eternal destiny that is waiting for us in the age to come. Confident that as we become more and more like Jesus today, we are preparing for the exciting vocation that will be awaiting us in the world made new. And that seems like an age to come that would be worth living in.